Many people have problems with art and not with reality. So what is art different? It's pretty simple, right? This is knowledge, this is thinking, this is thought. Yeah, it does something strange with your head. Welcome to the Undergang Armchair. Bring it. Yes, welcome to the Undergang Armchair. My name is Ondo. Today we're rebroadcasting one of my favorite conversations that we've had on this show with the venerable Darren Almond. It was from last year. It was recorded at Gallery Bobiergod on the eve of the opening of his show. He was sharp. He was accessible. He was kind. And so probably not incidentally, he's a very, very interesting artist. It's a fascinating conversation, so I am just going to leave it at that. Please enjoy Darren Almond, ladies and gentlemen. that I'll retire, inverted commas, to California. Retire. But I, how the fuck do you retire? Exactly. I don't think you do. You can't retire. <laughs> it's impossible. How the fuck do you stop working? Well, I mean, that kind of brings me straight into the point of this whole show, which is like, why do we do what we do? You know, yeah. and is it a job or is right. it a lifestyle or is it a necessity? Um, you know, you get up and you work, you get up and you think, you get up and you move it with every footstep. With right. every, every time you put your foot down, you're thinking about how much the environment has changed with every footstep. Every, 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 every walk is a thought. Do you so, think everybody's like that? If you're being persecuted, it's harder to think. Um, you know, the I've been fortunate enough to um, escape the kind of working persecution of the landscape of the people that raise me. Are you talking about being a lower middle class and having to work constantly to make money? Being well, being working working class, being you know coming from a family of fi- family of mu- family of mu- family of miners, right? And um, you know and. Grandparents from the war, uh, grandparents miners, uh, father labourer, and didn't you know of limited education, right? Um, but they, um, but um, I was kind of fortunate to have met the writings of George Orwell when I was a kid, and George Orwell, a social commentary writer, wrote um, a road to Wigan Pier, which is a, an account of. The mining landscape in the northwest of England in the thirties and a road to Wigan Pier. And Wigan is my town. So, if the, and I thought as a kid, if there's a road to Wigan, then there must be a road from Wigan. So you so kind of immediately knew. I, I, so there was my kind of way out. Right. Was, I mean, was Wigan one of those places that you very early realized I got to get out of here or was there any benefit to it? I mean, um, well, you know, the only time that, family members would leave the country at that time was if they were sent away to war. So the only kind of exotic imagery you would come across in the family album mm. would be like your great-grandfather on horseback in, about to go to battle, or it would be, a, you know, my granddad in the desert in a tank or something like this. That was the only time you would leave the country. Um, 
there was no, all my family, and my mother lives in the house next door to the one that she was born in. It's, people don't move, didn't move. It's right. only through, you know, her first visit to London, the capital city of her own country, was only made when she was in her late 40s, when she was coming to visit me, you know. It's wild how much that has changed in a single generation. Really. Unbelievable. Yeah. My, uh, my great-grandfather was killed in World War One, and his... His, my great grandmother remarried with a Norwegian man who moved to America in, in the time where you could give somebody five dollars and buy, you know, right. a huge plot of land, build a fence, and just go. Uh-huh. You know, right. and these are the same thing. People he emigrated and then never went anywhere. That ranch was right. that was it. And yeah. the children were raised there and the family's still there in a lot of uh-huh. ways. My mom was one of the people right. who, like you, said, I am out of here. Right. Okay. And bailed. Huh. That's, they have, there's a Norwegian, is it in, in the west coast of California? Oh. Along from Santa Barbara? It's Danish. Ah, is that it? That town, which is yeah. like some sort of weird Disneyland sure. Danish culture. Have you seen it? Yeah, 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 of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. Solvang. 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 <laughs> yeah, Solvang. That's it. Solvang. The land of the blue oak trees or something that place like this. is wild. Exactly the same trees that they had over here. Right. <laughs> Went all that way and thought, oh, shit. Yeah, no, there's those weird kind of like socio-cultural things about the U.S. where they, but it's not Danish at all in a weird way. You go there and these are Americans and then I saw a very interesting piece uh, about that area in which they talked to all the people who worked in the kitchens and the restaurants there Uh who are of Hispanic origin. Right. Just like every other restaurant in California. You know, here they are in this town, which is ostensibly 100% Danish. Right. And yeah. they come from the Yucatan, and they're just yeah. kind of like, I guess this is where I work now, you know. Right, there's that sure. really weird clash. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but you know, back to the thing, it's just it's just interesting that there are these jumps. So how did you get out? You just decided, I got to get out of here. I got to go see something else. Um, I got out through... Um, I was handed... I, my grandfather gave me a portrait of him um, that was made during the war um before he he died quite i was very close to my grandfather he lived next door and um he gave me this drawing which is a portrait of him that was done in pencil by a german soldier in the war that he'd caught and it was the end of the war and he had to march these germans back to he was told to take them into berlin and on that march uh, he traded a packet of cigarettes for this portrait to be drawn and he handed me that drawing before he died he died quite young of cancer. Um, I was kind of 11 years old at the time. So it was, it was, I was quite distraught. It was my, you know, it's, it's quite an age to approach the idea of death, I suppose. Oh, that kind of infinity. Right. So right next door. And, um, then I had this drawing and this was, it was, uh, that's the first piece of art that I'd kind of come into contact with. And it had a huge emotional resonance and it, I had it on the wall next to my kind of bed and I've lived with it ever since it's still and it's in my studio now where I sit in, in London I've always kind of carried it with me so um, as a kid I was I, I was the go-to boy if you needed something drawing so you uh, just as started a, as, a, as a young age I was always the drawer of the class you know the set maker the whatever uh-huh. and uh was that a positive position? Or yeah, a it was great. Position? It was fantastic, you know, because I was quite little. So it kind of uh, it stopped me being bullied a little bit. Right, and, um, and, um, the, and then one of my teachers mentioned this idea of, uh, you know, college and university. And these were words that had never been uttered in the family. 
It's like, really? You can go, oh, after school you go, really? Um, wow, wow. Okay. You don't go straight into the mines? Really? Yeah, but, oh God, well, my parents and I finished work, finished school when I was 14 and just worked ever since. Yeah. So yeah, you can, uh, there was another path. And then she said, and if you're really, and if you're kind of really crazy, you go to art school. Right. You're like, like really? there's a school where you draw <laughs> all really? day long. I'm going. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And was that from a pretty early age? That was from a very early age. Yeah. I think I kind of nailed that. I got myself some direction from, mm. I was fortunate to have it really early, like eight, nine. I kind of knew what my strength was. And then, you know, and then, and then you kind of, as you're being taught all the other subjects as you're at school, you kind of realize that art kind of brings everything, everything falls into the basket that is art. So right. If you're looking for it, yeah, you can see there. it everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Did, uh, did, was it a big shock when you went eventually to art school? Um, was it a big shock? The I was surprised at how unimpassioned a majority of the students were. It's just like any other school after a while, it turns yeah, out. Yeah. Um, so um, I was a little alarmed at how uninvolved. Immediately? Kind of. Mm. I mean, but it was, you know, it was a real, there was a real kind of lust and desire for me to be there. Right. I mean, that must reflect in you, in your engagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I mean, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, I went to a, a, one of the only art schools that's solely, that solely taught, was involved in the teaching and practice of making art. Uh, Winchester. There were, at the time, it was Winchester and Norwich. I, what I mean is that they're not affiliated to any other universities, mm. so there were, you, you wouldn't have a discourse with um, other sciences or other media's. Or it was just basically a straight studio, straight art-related school. Um, which and it was on the outskirts of London. I was a little, I still suffer. I was still a little bit scared of going to the big city because right, of the one my, you saw on television. Where because was, of my heritage, where uh, right. nobody had been there. So <laughs> this it kind of functioned quite well. It was in a kind of a sleepy, pretty town called Winchester. Was it more of a technical education, or were they were they very classical? Or were no, they um, very... it was. It came. I I. Applied for it was divided into painting and sculpture, and I applied to do kind of both. And there was a little bit of a argument between the staff as to which department I should go into. But I opted for sculpture basically because it was on the ground floor, so you could practically drag whatever you wanted into the studio and then drag it out and throw it in a skip, <laughs> which you then proceeded to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, it, um, my tutor was he kind of came through. Um, the teachings of Caro, so uh, John Gibbons is his name. He is his name. He came through um, this kind of abstract steel expressionist school of sculpture through Anthony Caro that had come, but he'd been at St Martin's, so it was quite it was quite lively, and oh. um, it was yeah, it was a good time. I had a great library. Lively is key. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, art school can, like you said, there's a lot of unengaged people, mm -hmm. strangely enough, yeah. which I always found especially interesting in America when you're like, you know how much this costs, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, sure. like you sure. should really maybe. Yeah. 
But uh, but that's also the strange thing about going to university at an age in which you're also figuring out what it means to be an adult, quote sure. unquote, what it means to mm-hmm. be a sentient being in our sure. society. Yeah, you're learning how to wash your socks and shit like that. Right, and I spent a lot of time boozing mm-hmm. instead of getting mm-hmm. work done, sure. you know, and that's sure. part of growing as well. Sure, sure, sure. But uh, did you ever, ever consciously say, okay, I'm going to make a go at at being an artist. And I mean, in terms of like, you know, at a certain point, money enters the picture. It has, you know, people are artists. They draw at night after I, their jobs or, you know, I, if, if it was destined to fail. That's the, you know, it's the kind of a practice that was bound to fail. That's the thing. What you was know, art? You know, I had no, I, I was very, um, expectant. I mean, I just thought that I would leave art school and then just have to get a job. Right. And that would be it. But, the minds but, of but, you. but um, I thought that you you would know people would know if you were an artist, you know. Right. You still had that in you. It was some. Sort it of... was. It was obviously apparent. Right. That, you know. I thought there's no. You know. You would know because people wouldn't. It's just you know. I didn't have. I never had that kind of overwhelming self belief and confidence to introduce myself as an artist well that's always kind of embarrassed by that right kind of idea well that's kind of the question i keep coming back to is why do we slash you choose to do this because it's one of those things people tell you your whole life Mm -hmm. you basically can't do this it's not a job you won't Mm -hmm. nobody makes a living except for a very selected few Mm -hmm. it's like being a rock star you know Mm -hmm. oh that sounds great but what are you really going to do right you know, and at some point there must be some sort of like forward momentum or self-chosen moment which goes into taking that step and saying, I am going to do this. Um, I got a job, you know, that as soon as I, as soon as I graduated, uh, then I, the next day I was kind of back up north, back in Wigan, back where I belonged and got a job with your people back with my people (laughs) I got a job and then in the place that I worked I kind of got a studio at the back so I would work through the nights building my sculpture and I was attempting to kind of get into a another college in London for like an MFA yeah exactly and then I and I came down and visited my tutor in who lived in London and showed him the work that I was making and he, he was um he'd kind of laid it out flat and said well why do you want to go to uh, why do you want to go and do an MFA? Why do you want to go back to college? Because you're doing it. Right. You this are is it. doing what you, you are doing want. it. You are surviving and you are making art. So right. you're already doing it. Right. There's nothing, you know, what's your problem? Right. So then I moved to London um, and uh, I was wandering down Oxford Street and was very pleased with myself. I, I kind of went and moved down on Christmas Eve and... To kind of prove a point to, I don't know, my parents or me. I don't know, no idea. I mean, it was, that was a little bit, I'm going, it's Christmas right. Eve. It's a little, a little dramatic, but right. it's, you know, <laughs> it's good for the biography. Yeah? So I came down and slept in my mate's bath and stuff. And, you know, I didn't have that much money at all. And then I had to find a job. I was wandering down Oxford Street and I'd, there was a sandwich chain had just opened called pret a Oh, that place is good. Yeah, well, this, the first one had just opened, and I walked in and said, "Anyway, they interviewed me, and they said they're going to open another store, and you 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 make a great manager because I kind of cooked my way through college as well, mm. um, part time in the evenings." 
so I was pleasing myself. I got myself, I got myself a job, and then I wandered down Oxford Street and I looked over the left hand side. And on Derring Street, there was Anthony Doffey Gallery, and I walked into the Doffey Gallery. And back then, in the early, very early nineties, you know, the, it was pretty much the only gallery in London, contemporary art. Um, wow. There was a the Listen Gallery, Doffey. Victoria Miro, but it was pretty much just Doffy. And I walked in, there was a Bill Viola show on. And just as I was leaving, I, as the door opened, I opened the door to leave and I turned around to the girl in reception and said, have, have you got any jobs for a technician? And she said, oh, the head technician's just quit this morning and he's emigrating tomorrow to Australia because that's the only way you can leave this place. Come in tomorrow and have an interview. So I came in the following day went and bought myself a second hand suit from Oxfam you know looked ridiculous went in <laughs> and had an interview and I persuaded them that because of my pizza making abilities in Winchester I was the man that would that you need to put in charge of your war horse. <laughs> that's it <laughs> it's similar to running a projector you know? yeah <laughs> And uh, so they gave me the job, and uh, and the next the next week, you know, I was in the stock room, surrounded by you know three hundred boys' drawings and Baslitz paintings, Nauman sculptures, and having to deal with the deinstallation of the of the one of the shows, and that happened to be um, a sculptor, Reinhard Mucker mm. from Dusseldorf, and he. One of the great things about Wigan was that the art school. Had, when I was, where I did my foundation course, the art school had this amazing library and an amazing subscription to all the art journals and magazines. And so that's how I was able to fuel my kind of interest. And, so your eyes were already open. You could I'd say. seen a lot of stuff through yeah. the magazines, but you know, um, and he had stood out. He'd been somebody that I'd kind of focused on. You know, there was. Um, there was also like a Tashin contemporary art book that was issued and, you know, Wigan doesn't have a bookshop. You know, this is what... It's the only way to find it. And, and this uh, this book was bought in a, in a neighbouring town by my grandma, you know, Tashin. You know, they have amazing distribution, contemporary art book. And it covered the whole kind of Cologne scene. So I go through these pages and Mucker was the guy that stood out. And then there you were. There I was, with, and because uh, Reinhardt's very uh, particular and fastidious about the, how his works moved and handled, he was over for deinstallation. So I met him, and he was great. He was a regular guy. We we did the work together. We had a beer. We spoke about football. He had a fascination with trains, and then just having that contact with somebody was like, huh? Isn't that nice? It's like you're oh, you're not this. Right thing on a pedestal. You are just a you, guy. You're a guy. Yeah, and that was a huge. And then I think, you know, in the ten months I was there, I came into contact with a lot of work by a lot of great artists because it was a, an amazing gallery. But you could also, you know, I also came across like some of the weaker sides of the artist practice, and that was also very humbling. It's like, oh fuck, oh, you know, and then I, you know. It's it's nice to know that there are there's an amplitude of work that people right. make. There's a thinking process of things that aren't so successful, things that are very successful, and that's just you know, and that's great. Right, which is part of bringing it down to a regular level, Allow, allowing you to get on the same train. Right. So, I mean, 
at this whole time, you were also still making your works? Um, at that point, no, because my time was fully occupied. And then um, I left the gallery and um, that's when I got my first studio in London. And uh, then from there, everything kind of happened rather quickly. Um, though I installed a sculpture. I made an oversized, an oversized ceiling fan and illegally installed it on the underside of a freeway and powered it from my studio, which is about 200 meters away. And when I would go there at night and work in my studio, I'd flick a switch in the corner of the studio and a couple of hundred meters away, this ceiling fan would start to spin underneath this elevated freeway. And it would turn the hulk of this piece of concrete into this kind of sky boat thing floating through the night sky. And, uh, then I organised with my girlfriend at the time. Well, she she was she put together this group show, which I helped, and I, I helped her. And we invited she, she sorry she invited Reinhard Mucker to come over. So we went to visit Reinhard. This and I showed him my work. He then took me to uh, Wuppertal and showed me the Schwebebahn train system. And I, so I made a eight millimeter film about that, which was the first kind of time I'd shot anything in terms of moving image. Mm. I came back, put it into the projector, then watched it and put it back in the projector. And because of my kind of naivety, I put it in backwards and upside down because I hadn't rewound the film, but then the piece worked. It, it Something happened. It started to vibrate. When it was, uh, well, you know, because the, the Schwebebahn is a suspended monorail system. So is that the one that hangs, hangs from the top? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So if you flip it round... Wow. then it becomes a normal train trundling along an upside-down world. So this was the beginning of a trilogy of train films that I wow. started. Wow. That subsequently ended up in the Met, and um, back in the studio, I was still coming to terms with this idea of being an artist. That's all I was paying attention to. Um, because I, had, I, I now had a studio, so therefore, by implication, it meant that you are an artist. So I somehow had to come to terms with the fact that I was an artist, but I would still would. I still was just literally going in there and staring at a blank wall. Were you feeling ashamed or guilty, or like it wasn't? No, right? I, I, no. I just I didn't know quite. You know, I, the structure of the art school had kind of gone, and that you know you're kind of out there by yourself then. So right. and the practice was it had changed. That my interest had changed. Um, you know, you readdress. You know, in your foundation year, you work through a lot of stuff very quickly in the space of 12 months. And then that circle of work seems to repeat itself through your practice, but it expands and the diameter, the circumference gets larger over time. And then it comes, it comes around slower and slower, but you still kind of go on, on a similar kind of circular path. Um, um, where was I? You got back to the studio, staring at a white wall, and I, I was going over to this space over in, uh, on the east side of town. I was west side of town, and one of the disused shops that we were going to use as gallery spaces for this show, you know, London was buzzing because the whole kind of YBA thing was kicking off, and um, in one of the spaces I'd found this uh, security camera, a CCTV camera. You know, mm. there weren't that many floating about then right this was back in the, the so, it, so it was like oh fuck me there's my friend George Orwell again there's right. 1984 
there's, this is a, there's, there's something going on here. He's, he's, he's in the space. And I, okay. So I took the camera back to the studio, started fucking around with it, breaking it, pulling it apart and decided that I, what I should do is probably try and do a live link from my studio to the exhibition space. Are we in the mid nineties here? This is mid nineties. This is early nineties. So this is when people were still running, running around answering pages. Right. You know, and only a few people had a cell phone. So the internet wasn't around at this point. Right. So this whole kind of idea of live feed and this, the kind of spectacle of that and what that incorporates was, it was still more of a spectacle, shall I say. So I got, I approached the BBC, the then BBC, um, and asked them if they could set up a live link from my studio to the other side of town. So they came round, and because um, Thatcher had um, partly had franched had made the BBC franchise itself out to be um, uh, uh, to be more business savvy, they more were privatized. A, more privatized. They were they were allowed to rent their equipment. And rather, you could rather, call them? You could just call just, the BBC? Just hey. call, I just called them up and they came, they came <laughs> over. And so I sat in my little cold studio kind of like, Ooh. didn't know what was going to turn up. And then this guy turned up with a pair of binoculars and a compass. And I was like, well, <laughs> I was expecting like a big truck and stuff. He said, no, no, I'm just going to look at the, let me get to the roof here. So he went up onto the roof of the building and from the roof of the building, he could see television center which was kind of a mile away in shepherd's bush he said oh i've got a line of sight there okay that's good so what i'll do i'll send a microwave beam from here to that building in a straight line then underground cables can go about 30 miles we have an antenna in the south of london so the signal will go 30 miles underground up the antenna they'll then send a signal to some guys on top of a high rise in brixton on the south side of the river they'll catch the signal then they'll turn around and send a signal to a high rise behind where you want to go in the north end, northwest, northeast of London. They'll catch the signal and then we'll probably get 400 meters of cable and run it, run it and plug it directly into your projector. We'll Holy have a live link. Shit. So that, okay. That sounds great. That sounds great. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much. It makes me think so much of how what a transitional time that was too. Because if you think about the infrastructure involved with that, now you could do it with one yeah. friend with a little bit sure. of internet sure. savvy. Sure. You know, like yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all there would need to be. Yeah. But Absolutely. that was, you know, at the time when signals traveled through air, and that, and you know, and that was high, ba- you know, that's high bandwidth as well. This is microwave, so it was broadcast quality. Mm. So the micro, so it needed, you know, it, the piece needed. I had, I all I did was to point the camera in the corner of the studio, where I sat, where I, where my drawing desk was, and where a window was, and the back wall, and on the wall I put a, one of these um, mechanical uh, clocks. The flip clocks. The flip clocks. Yeah. So I put the microphone inside the flip clock. And then the signal was, the live feed was sent and it was projected life size. So he walked in, it was like a camera, it worked like a camera obscura mm-hmm. in part, a kind of digital one. But every minute there was this almighty crash because I amplified the same signal. And that's what made the event live. And it went live. And But people didn't, people came to the opening and were kind of curious as, they thought it was a video projection, um, but there's all, t- all these kind of oscilloscopes in the corner. Right. And so I, one of my friends, an artist, uh, Jake Chapman, he 
was one of the early guys. He was quite successful early on. So he had a mobile phone. So I said, call the studio. So he called the studio and then there was this huge feedback loop generated. Right. And then everybody froze in this space and was like, fuck, it's live. It's like, right. huh. That's an interesting kind of moment. Right. Well, you've been developing kind of an interest in time. Mm-hmm. And that must have been, I mean, was that kind of near the beginning of your in- of that interest? Um, that, well, then... The what I after that after that event I uh, I was asked by the ICA to enter this uh, competition which I did and uh, won so that meant that I could do a sh- I couldn't was able to do a show there um, so I set up another link with the prison um, just for the listeners what's the ICA uh, Institute of Contemporary Art in London in London yeah yeah, yeah. and um, so I set up this live feed from a working prison that they I got them to I spoke to the um, home office and they because again because it was we knew that the new Labour government was going to come in and the Conservatives were, were going to be out after all that time the prison service said well you we can do this but let's do it after May after the election because they think we'll, we'll, we'll have different authority then so, right. so you can come and do it then so we were able to set that link up. But then I would go back to the studio and I'd still have this bloody blank wall to be looking at. Because <laughs> goddamn walls. Because, so, uh, you know, I actually physically, I physically hadn't made anything. Right. Um, I just had this white wall, so I sat in front of the wall for a day and photographed it every minute for uh, 1,440 minutes, which lets, you know, which had these two extraordinary kind of moments, time frames, you know, at, at dawn and dusk, mm. when, because this was midwinter, um, I deliberately shot on the shortest day of the year, um, and then there was this sort of kind of, you know, you, I, I was a little naive, I kind of sat there thinking I could listen to music and maybe read a book and stuff, and I hadn't really worked out, I didn't really know how long a minute was, and it's not that long really. It's in, either really long or really short. Yeah, or you know, you you're so exhausted that you you live the same minute again and again and again. Right, right, right. And I, you know, when the contact sheets came back, um, because there was a clock in the corner, there was a clock in the shot, telling me the time. You know, the idea was the clock goes over, I take a shot. The clock goes over, I take a shot, and I would stay there for twenty four hours. Um, but some, I mean, one minute, I think I shot it eight times. You start to kind of time becomes so memory. You're just so untethered to everything. Yeah, you're just so exhausted that you can't. You did I did I take that? I better take it again. And if you work, do the math. You know, eight times in one minute. That's like eight eight seconds. It's like did I do that? No, I better do it again. Oh man, I I was standing in the dark room. You're like, did I just wait? Yeah. Was that the beginning of your interest in photography then? Yes. Is, is photography a tool for you, or is that is that more of a um, material, or what, what position does photography fill? Um, that's how I stumbled into photography. Right, because that's my step into your work, was right. the, is the full moon work. Right. As okay. a photographer myself, mm-hmm. I find them mm-hmm. 
obviously to be stunning and interesting and engaging. Uh-huh. Uh, photogravures, I especially mm-hmm. like yeah. photogravures. I know uh-huh. Crown Point Press in San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. You know, that has been sure. my kind of material right. side in. Right. So, of course, it's of special interest to mm-hmm. me to hear what that material right. means to you. Right. Um, well, it was, it was that kind of experiment and plus put that with the idea of trying to document I was trying to document this ceiling fan on the underside of the Westway that was lit up Mm. so I was engaged in speaking to photographers about the math of all things photographic how to make this work of all things photographic how the hell does this work so the math of the whole thing was in my head Uh. and I had been living in this you know biographically I've been living in the city for some time now and you know, I'm a country boy I'm I was kind of used to walking across fields at night under the by the light led by the light of the moon and I'd realized that I'd not really seen the moon since I've been in the city because it had been um hidden it had been disguised by all the sodium light and I found myself in found myself in the south of France and up popped the moon I was at the foot of Monson Victoire and the moon kind of came up was full and the math and the camera were there together and so I thought hmm maybe I don't know maybe an exposure of 15 minutes would would do it and and it and it did and I got this image back one image um full color which was a bit of a surprise I mean so naive it's ridiculous but I think that you know, you have to, you kind of, as a, there's a theme in the show of this kind of zero, um, the zero is becoming quite important to me now at the moment. It's uh, this idea of, I mean, there's a sculpture on the wall called the either side of nothing. And you have to, um, it's this idea, it's kind of almost like it's a kind of Zen idea where you, you have to know nothing in order to understand anything. Is that the plus minus? Yeah. 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 And so sometimes it, yeah, at the time I felt I didn't really know anything about photography, but and that was you know you you can shift, you can forge your own little kind of path right. into this into the medium that right. way. So um, then this image just kind of sat in my studio for some time, and I, I, you know a year or more, and which I just kept staring at this image and was compelled to look at it. And couldn't work out why I was drawn to this Im- to this image, to the light in the image. And it wasn't just aesthetic reasons. It wasn't. No, there was something going on that I couldn't nail, and mm. and that, and that then you know the more you kind of analyze it, you 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 start to work it out. And you know, there's no the shadows are. It's you know, because of the duration. Your. Um, your light source is moving, you know. You, so you have a constantly moving light source through the ex, through the exposure. So that softens, erases all shadows. Right. So the shadows go. So you have this kind of apparent bright light, but there are no shadows. It's right. like, whoa, hang on a minute. So there's part of your, you know, is, is this is the landscape of our? This is our dreamscape. What what landscape is this? Right. Where, you know, where is this? Well, unlike other photography, it's also an image you can't see. In your real life, when Correct. you stand there yeah. and take that picture, it doesn't look like the final result. No, 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 no. That you're, you know, you're exposing more. Right. You're going beyond the realms of your internal shutter speed and workings of your own eye. Yeah. Um, 
but there was kind of a little bit more to it as well. <laughs> you know, there's, there's always a little bit more to it. There's, um, you're giving, you know, photography is controlled by time as well as light. You know, it's the combination of the two, you know, that's the math side of it. And you're, exp you're giving, I shoot, I shoot on film. So it's an organic process initially. And this, what you're, you know, you're taking something that's been designed to live for 100, one, say one sixtieth of a second. You're giving it a, a, a lifespan that is infinite, you know, Ex exponentially enormous. You know, you're taking it up to fifteen minutes, half an hour. You know, two hours. Weather dependent. It's a live event. You've got to sit there and watch the weather. You've got to be engaged with what happens in the landscape at that moment. In at that throughout its whole duration, uh, in order to get the exposure. And you're, so, therefore, you're given you're given the landscape time to express itself, right. rather than this idea of a glance, you know, there is, you, you can't look back at a glance. Right. There glance is no decisive scale. moment. No, no, not at all. No. And you're, you're also allowing other currents that take place in the landscape to present themselves. So you, you know, you can level the ocean, but you will reveal the current. Right. Which is, which you, the... you don't see. Right. I wanted to ask though about about travel and location too, because mm -hmm. you you seem to specifically work on location. You go places to mm -hmm. make works. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, again, maybe you're trying to get away from that white wall in the right. studio, <laughs> you know. But like you, you clearly location and, uh -huh. and travel is important. You were yeah. part of the Arctic show. You, yeah. you know, is that is that exploration or is that actual realization of ideas or? Um. I, I get led there by writings of, of, from other people. So um, I, I was invited as a direct result of starting of doing the full moon, starting the full moon project. I did a show um, at Tate Britain with Turner, and because um, I'd followed in his footsteps in the early stages of the full moon series through the um, through the Alps. That was seen by this charity that had um, that was set up to clear the beaches of um, Ant Antarctica. So I was invited to go down and be in inverted commas the artist on board at the end of the season. Um, and we and the boat was a it was a small sailboat that went when it was the end of the Arctic, Antarctic summer and the winter was coming in. The ice was forming. And we were sailed around for a month or so down in Antarctica. And this was a huge, had a huge imp impact upon me. Um, because Antarctica, as you know, is a, is a landmass. Um, it's a large landmass. It's twice the size of Australia. Um, but down in Antarctica, if you're at sea level, you're also above the clouds. You're, there isn't, because there's no tree line. Oh. So um, all if you look vertically at the globe, our existence is predominantly within the tree line right. and in Antarctica it's non-existence so you're you're in a landscape that we're not designed to be in so it erases our, our existence so it clears your mind the first night I was there I remember so it's the first night on board the boat and I, I slept and then I had this dream and it, everybody I'd ever met came into the dream but wow. literally everybody kids from my primary school, 
everybody. It was exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> Some sort of weird reset button. But it, it was a complete reboot. And then kind of slowly you kind of crawl, your back, crawl back into the civilized, developed world. You know, wow. you come back and you, and you sail back across the uh, Drake's Passage. I've never sailed before. And the next thing, I'm chained to a boat crossing the roughest ocean in, on the planet. Huge swells, albatrosses behind us, you know, waves 90 feet tall. And just like, what the f- Couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, couldn't drink. You know, um, it was kind of torturous. But then, then, you, then you're visual palette has changed as well you, you know then you come back and you start to see green and then you see a horse with four legs and, right. and but then you get given pathways to follow and this is a, a little bit confusing right i guess there are no pathways in there but no you, you're free to go wherever you need anyway so i then suppose that um because i've been to antarctica it made sense that i went to the arctic and i had my kind of casper and i wanted to go and have my kind of casper david friedrich moment up in the Arctic and look for ice and uh, I I was going to make my, I wanted to go in via Russia because I was um, rereading you know, kind of histories of the 20th century, uh, Russian 20th century and in particular I focused on Joseph Brodsky and he uh, the poet in exile that lived in America but he was sent um, to a gulag in um, you know, his crime was his writing and he was sent to Archangel. So I was hoping to go via Archangel to Mamansk and there I would find my ice and I could continue my full moon series in, 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 in following the kind of romantic tradition. But when I got to Mamansk, the um, submarines, the nuclear submarines were stationed, our station there and the, so a war had broke out in the Gulf somewhere. And I turned up in Mamansk as, as you know, this American with all this camera equipment. Um, you were just American? Well, you, know, you spoke English, you were American. <laughs> right. That's, you, know, you had camera equipment, you're American. And so, so they wouldn't let me go anywhere. You know, They were okay. literally like, no, won't take you there, can't take you there. And I'm like, I, they wouldn't let me leave the city, the, confine, the boundary of the city. So I, t- um, so I turned around, went back to St. Petersburg, and there I met with this guy who had this museum that dealt with the Arctic and Antarctic. And he said, if you needed... If you're looking for ice, then go to Dudinka. And Dudinka is in the Tamir Peninsula, which is central northern Siberia, northern mm-hmm. Siberia, so up, way up in the Arctic. And Dudinka is an old medieval port on the um, on the Yenzi, which flows north um, from Novosibirsk. It flows up and into the Kara Sea, which is high up in the Arctic. Um, and that's the route that the nickel comes from Norilsk. Mm, so that's right there, those huge nickel mines. The largest yeah. in, in the world is the, the nickel mine that controls the price of nickel globally. Right. Um, but they also, which is why this lesson zero is shot. Um, so, so by accident, I ended up in Dudinka, and that's where I... On the ice there is where I shot the video Arctic Pull, which is what was just screened at Louisiana in the Arctic show. Um, and as I was leaving Didinka, I spotted this broken railway bridge and the timbers that made the bridge were incongruous to the landscape in terms of scale because all the trees were really fine and spindly and 
most of them looked dead and uh-huh. I had no idea. They looked burnt. They looked like they'd been a huge forest fire, is what I thought. But that kind of looked weird because there was snow on the ground. And there's snow on the ground for 10 months of the year. So how did they have How much fire opportunity? How much did they have? What the hell caused the fire? Um, and I literally, you know, naive questions again to the taxi driver. And he said, oh, well, the, you know, that's a kind of silent monument, the broken railway bridge, because that's the first railway that was constructed between Dudinka and Narilsk, and Narilsk Nickel. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So, we're now talking about the most northern railway in the world. So I'd happened upon this railway by accident. Fortuitous again. And um, the bridge had been constructed with the first railway. So basically it was a gulag. Yeah? Um, the, a German um, a German geologist was under the regime of Stalin was sent up into Siberia to go and look, I mean, no other option to go and look for go and look for ores and metals and he came across Schmidt Mountain well he came across a mountain they named it after him and the mountain contains all the mineral or everything that's available everything that you see on the periodic table is available within this mountain and they've been mining it ever since it's been churning out vast quantities of nickel since the 50s. Hmm. The problem is that the nickel is heavily laced with a lot of sulfur. So they burn more sulfur into the atmosphere than... Well, in that city, they burn more into the atmosphere than in North North America, including Canada. All of it combined? All of it combined. Holy cow, that is a lot of sulfur. And so that's why the forests and trees are... Right, that the changes the landscape entirely. Well, I, I, um, what I, you know, the trees that you see in the photographs—they've been—they look like they're made of carbon. Uh, they look carbonized, or they look like they've been burned. But it's the trees have suffocated, and then the wind has beat them. So that's why a bit like a climber's fingers when you get frostbite, they go black. That's what's happened to the trees. So that's so that was the beginning of my relationship with Narilsk. So Narilsk then became. Um, the kind of studio of my mind somehow it, right. was, it became a fixation for me and this is the show you have now this is work is, I'm still making work from trips and to and from Narilsk right. so the, fil- the film installation you see is the second part of a trilogy of films um, the first was called Anthropocene the Prelude then we have this film Less Than Zero and I've got to shoot the final film. The numbers. What are the numbers as part of the show? Um, well, you um, you get to you get to the numbers through language somehow. As I was saying, I, you know, Brodsky Brodsky kind of guided me across the Arctic. He kind of guided me through the landscape of all things Russian. Um, and if you, there's in the series of lithographs here, you'll see a, a line, two lines that are highlighted. Only sound needs echo and dreads its lack. A glance is accustomed to no glance back. So that's referential in terms of photography, but it's mm-hmm. also this idea that um, sound needing an echo. And if there is an echo, then there's another presence with you. And it totally described the landscape for me. It really 
nailed that landscape, this idea that when you talk, it phone sound just falls to the ground. Unless you, you're with somebody, then you have an echo, and then you're, you're no longer alone. Then the words, you know, then this, it, it all starts to come through. The paintings kind of come through the kind of failings of the lexicon somehow, you know, because I play with text and words in terms of the rail plates, mm. the kind of bronze plaques that you see that are made for me by um, the people that make them for the British Rail. So the, the railway system in England, locomotives and engines are given a name. And there's um, there's a Nabokov quote where, um, where we think in the shadows of words. So we don't think in words, we think in the shadows of words. And this combined with them, there's another, there's a Primo Levely, Primo Levi short story called The Tranquil Star. I've read that one. And he talks about the um, failings of language. Right. And um, also, you know, and for me, you know, I'm kind of in agreement in that language does become a little bit lazy. As soon as things tend towards the abstract, then lang- we lose we lose it within our lexicon. You know, it gets real blurry. Real we can fast. only well, we can become lazy, and everything become millions and billions and trillions. But if you think exponentially of what's happening in terms of scale, the la- the language doesn't suit. Right. So anything that anything that enters the abstract is quickly transferred into numerics. So the numerical, the numbers of these kind of displaced numbers, the broken numbers, the digitized numbers, they've been severed. Um, they're dealing with this, ab- both abstract and figurative. They o- operate as a, um, a kind of sub-coordinates of a practice, of a space, of a place in time, of a space. Um, they um, They come from... You know they have a they have a grid they have a structure so then therefore so therefore you're dealing with um, geography in part right. so um, you're, and you're so you're dealing with and it's a global language of course but it's also a failed economy you know it, it, the economy as it stands isn't working right you know? um, so it's a, a failed system that we're still adhe- adhered to. Right. So it's so multi-layered, in fact, that you can you can take it. I mean, it, it reminds me of you talking mm-hmm. earlier about the rotations mm-hmm. of ideas. You know, this is this work, uh, these these numbers can be the center of a certain set of rotations mm-hmm. outside of that. Yeah. You know, and they can go in many directions. You talk about economy, you talk mm-hmm. about coordinates, you mm-hmm. talk about uh-huh. uh, fallacies of language, yeah. you know, etc. Uh-huh. Exactly. And, uh, you know, and they... In the yellow painting, in the sulfuric yellow painting, oh. before you meet the landscape, there's there's the whole zero. So you have this kind of idea of thing numbers on either side of nothing, right? You know, and that's the only way that you can measure and gain any understanding of where you are is to situate yourself, right? Well, I think it, I think it looks great. Is 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 so you're supposed to walk in in a specific direction, right? No. Yeah, it's, 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 I'm really not, not I'm not a dictator. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you're obviously telling a story too. But it's an open-ended. Story. It's it's yeah. It, there's a loop of thought. You know, right. there are gateways in and out. It's right. um, you know, there, there are mantras that re- reference themselves in and through the piece. There's always there's a lot of cross referencing going on. Right, and in and out of your own practice and experience too. Sure, absolutely. Um, now we've reached this point. 
Mm-hmm. Here you are. You are now a working artist. Mm-hmm. You're you're yeah. living the life. You're doing what right. people told you you couldn't do. Uh-huh. Um, why do you? I don't do think it I don't think people people didn't tell me I couldn't do it. Society didn't. I mean, I, for me, I, I, just I, I think like, I thought I couldn't do it. Okay, so you told yourself even you couldn't do it in a way. Yeah, I presumed I couldn't do it. Presum- yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I mean. Yeah. Is It's just is that, that that weird knowledge everybody has that being an mm-hmm. artist is like being a rock star, being the president, or being mm-hmm. a prime minister. You know, somebody else gets to do right. that, not, right. not me. Yeah. Um, but now you are doing it. Mm-hmm. Why do you do it now? I mean, you spoke earlier about retirement in right. a very fastidious way, you know. Yeah, but I can't, you can't. I mean, it's, it, you do it because it's you. That's what... This is, this is how I engage with the world. Right. This is my way of learning about my situation, coming to terms with where I am, trying to pass this on to my children. This is my, my understanding. This is uh, this is um, knowledge. This is a walk. This is knowledge. This is thinking. This is thought. This, this is, is the journey. This is it. You know, mm. this is the small glimmer of light between an infinite darkness. This is, I'm here for this short, tiny, tiny fraction of time. I can't really think of a better reason to do it then. So, is art important? I don't just mean to you, but of course, of course, it's, it's the it's the only thing. Huh? It's the most important energy. We all it's in everybody. Even if you're told it's not, it is. That's wild. I want to thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank I can't you. really think of a better way to end it than that. <laughs> okay. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay. All the best. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Undergang Armchair. Our intro and outro music was kindly provided by Johnny Ripper, and today's interstitial music was provided by The Passion Hi-Fi. You can find links to their music and tons of other conversations with great artists on our intercontinental fiber cable of a website, undergang.net. This show is produced in part with the kind support of the Danish Arts Council. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget to tell a friend.